All right, we are back here at the end of the Just End the Suffering podcast. Time for our weekly pop culture segment and back by popular demand, self-quarantining, and one of the last people I actually saw in person before all this madness happened, the great John Stanko. John, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing all right, Mike. How is your quarantine life going? It's going fine. I mean, just going day at a time, making sure I'm staying away from people, just doing my thing, doing my part to help slow the spray, but hopefully more people actually start taking this stuff seriously. Yeah, I think I think we're lucky that our generation is a little bit better handled to this, handled to uh, able to handle this compared to like our parents or our grandparents who are not used to sitting around watching movies and watching Netflix and stuff like that. So, I think we're actually one of the fortunate times where the younger generation is uh, actually above the curve on this one, how to handle it. Yeah, in case people are wondering why I said Stankles on the last people I saw, we were both in Atlantic City for the MAC basketball tournament, working like with Iona's athletics department. Iona lost on the Wednesday night right before all the sports shut down. So at least we got to end our own terms and not have our, the season completely taken away by the virus. Yeah, but we were there. We were uh, Our game was happening when the NBA was canceled. Um, when Rudy Gobert got, the, got uh, pinned with for the coronavirus. And it was a very eerie feeling. It was very reminiscent of the same day Kobe died when Iona was playing. And it happened again during an Iona game where everybody's talking about something else that's not the game. And it's just so weird being in an arena and working a game when the when the basketball that's taking place on the court is completely secondhand to what's happening in the real world. Now, I don't know. I didn't get to talk to you about this at the time, but, like, I will be honest. Like, I was working that game. I was sitting there. I'm like, even if we win, we're not going to be here like beyond tomorrow. I feel like everything changed that night. Oh, yeah. I think everybody knew that there was no way. Like, Power 5 conferences were canceling their tournaments, and there was, like, there was no way the Mac's going to be the only holdout in the entire country. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it, just, it was a surreal scene, let me tell you. Surreal. Yeah, one thing we'll never forget for sure, but I will say we are here to talk some Westworld Season 3, and I got to say, John, you and I talked about this before. You said you were kind of out on Westworld Season 2. You, how, you said you're all back in now? Season three, Mike, has been absolutely excellent. Uh, I, it has blown me away, uh, the expectations that I had. Um, I think a big reason for that is it went through a little bit more simplistic storytelling. Um, I don't think there aren't that many timelines to keep track of, so I'm sure we'll go into what other possible uh, multi uh, facets of the series of this season, because there are some definitely theories out there with that, but they went through more linear storytelling that's easier to follow. And the writing, Mike, is just so much better. The dialogue is crisper. The long soliloquies and speeches that in season two seem so forced and way too preachy, they actually seem kind of natural in the flow of season three. And the way the show looks, Mike, is stunning. I don't know what the budget is for the show. I don't know if it's more than Game of Thrones, but everything in the show is looks futuristic and it looks amazing. It really does. Before we dive into the spoilers here, you want to tell me how you got into the show? So I got into the show right away. I saw the first trailer, and I was hooked. Um, I, I like science fiction. I like philosophical movies. Uh, and to, you make a TV show that's high-budget science fiction and philosophical. I was like, all right, I'm in. Um, I remember when the first trailer came out, uh, I was impressed with the vastness that they showed of what Westworld was. And then if you look at that first trailer, I went back and rewatched it today. Everything about Westworld was big and expansive and large vistas to the landscape. And then everything that happened within, within Delos and within the Westworld uh, administration aspect was so claustrophobic and dark. 
compared to Westworld. And I love that kind of that dichotomy uh, in that trailer. So that hooked me right away. Uh, I also can't deny that Anthony Hopkins being linked to the show was a huge plus for me. Uh, just having fitting wisdom in the trailer, I was all about that. I'm a big Anthony Hopkins fan. Um, and I remember watching the trailer the first time I saw it. I remember there's the man in black, uh, but he was the one who was reciting all the heroic lines about finding themselves and finding the truth. And I was like, are they really kind of the bad guy wearing all the black and being that menacing? And I thought it was an interesting piece of storytelling within the trailer. Now, obviously, the way the story unfolded told a little bit of a different tale in all these aspects, but I was hooked right away from the first trailer. I loved all of season one. I watched it right away. Season two, as you mentioned earlier, I definitely fell out of love with because it just it was not as strong. It got too complicated, too convoluted. Um, and I, I would wait until like Wednesday or Thursday the following week to watch it. Uh, but season three, I'm back on either. I'm not watching it Sunday night. I'm watching it as soon as I can on Monday uh, to make sure I don't miss anything. Season three has been excellent. Like, I'm all the way back in. I'm all aboard the train. Yeah, I'm glad you are. I'm, I'm back in with you. If you want my origin story, I said it, told it last week on the podcast at Sam's when we talked about the first three episodes of the season. I'm not going to bore the new listeners with it again, but I'm going to throw the spoiler warning up because we have to get into what happened in episode four last night. Before we go any further, are we sure that you are actually John Stanko, not just me being John Stanko in a host body? Yeah, I don't know. Are we in the uh, are we in the simulation world or are we in the real world? Which world are we in, Michael? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. We could be in May simulation world where where uh, Lee Sizemore is still alive as a host. It, it's possible. It's possible. Um, yeah, I mean, we're going to get into episode four. This episode, this episode's really interesting to me, Mike, because in a way, it was the most. Uh, how do I say this? It was the most basic cable episode of Westworld I can ever remember. Where it was just, it was plot driven of, we're gonna go to the bank, we're gonna steal his money, where then we're gonna get him, and we're gonna interact with characters. And it was very simple in its storytelling, but yet also at the end of it, it had what possibly the fulcrum moment of season four, where we realized that the lore is in everybody. So it's simplistic in the way it told the story, but in the end, it still had one of the biggest twists, if not the biggest twist of the season. So I love that dichotomy in this episode, and it, it was a phenomenal episode of TV. Yeah, I think we have to go to the spoiler. You just mentioned it. Uh, last week, we were talking with Sam. We're trying to figure out who was in Charlotte. We came up with some theories. We said it was Teddy. We thought I thought it might have been Armistice. She said Dad Bernathy could have been in there. But instead, it's Dolores. And Dolores is in every host she's made. She's in Connell's. She's in uh, the guy from Shogun World who she brought into the real world. Dolores said it best. Like, if you need to do a job right, make sure you do it yourself. Yeah, and I, the thing is, I, I was not shocked at this reveal. I think it makes a lot of sense because Dolores has the ego where she just all she wants to do is handle this on her own. And the one thing from season two is you knew that she wanted to be like a god. Like, that's the way she sees herself. She sees herself as a liberator and setting people free, like, to free for themselves. And that is just now put literally into, like, tangible form in this season three with now her controlling every bit of aspect of her taking over whatever world that she's in. Um, so I, I love this twist. And, Mike, the, the best thing about this twist is it also makes the show simpler to watch because you don't need to remember as many characters, right? You don't need to remember who's in whose body anymore. Now you just know Dolores is four or five people. You can pinpoint her storyline to those, to those characters of the bodies that she's in. 
And then you maybe have Bernard and, and Maid, and then those are the three main characters. And Ciroc. But you know that Dolores is everywhere, so it makes remembering the characters in the storyline so much easier as well. Yeah, I did love that twist, and I, I ran an interview online with uh, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, the creators of the show, and they said that there's something they had in their minds at the beginning of the show, but they didn't want to break it out too early. It felt like a cheat to have just copies of a personality out there. So they, now is the right time to bring it out and sort of thing that was interesting is like the ramifications of like putting Dolores in different per- situations, different personalities. Cause like we saw last week when she was in the Charlotte Hale featured episode, how like she was, there are parts where we were sort of adapting the fact that, Oh, Charlotte has a kid. I feel bad for the kid, but then you see her go full Dolores and she strangles the purple in the park. Yeah, I, I, the interesting thing is with like it was if a Charlotte is like I I have this theory I don't know if it's accurate or not but when Charlotte was hurting herself and cutting herself literally in like the shape of a robot to try and find what was inside of her I kind of think that we didn't see everything in that in that hotel room and I kind of think that that was a moment where Dolores I don't like had to kill the Charlotte Hale uh, like like mind or whatever because it was corrupted or something like that. And that's what, that's the moment where she realized, like, I have to do this on my own. And that's why she's, and then, then she's in the bed. Like, I, I'm a little bit confused about how Charlotte Hale, this, 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 her mind is no longer in the show. Uh, that's so the human form of Charlotte Hale. Um, so I, I have a theory that the Charlotte Hale was legitimately in her own brain, but Dolores was controlling her, but then it got corrupted, so Dolores had to kill her and then insert herself. And that was the moment where she realized, I have to do this on my own. That's kind of my thinking if we're not seeing everything that happened in that hotel room. I don't know if that's true or not. That's just that's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's an interesting point because we it's something that I was noticing too. When I watched, was actually rewatched the opening credits again because, like, you know, as the first two seasons, they seem tend to drop hints in the opening credits of, like, oh, like, themes you can watch where, like, this year is very interesting where you see, like, there's one point where, like, the host body is swimming and then it starts sinking and the face opens up and it gives that whole theme of like who's inside this body we don't know and the, the strike visual of me in the open is the whole idea of like the host body like dipping back into the liquid and the past season has been white and this year it's blood red which I think is very interesting yeah I, I mentioned the opening credits I love the mix of the, of the red and the white and there was a very obvious reference to it in the end of episode 4 with Maeve dying and the mixing of the blood and, and the white, uh, the white hope milk, if you will. Um, and it was obvious right there. I think that is a symbolic of humans mixing with the robots. Um, and now them blending together. And they also have the strawberry milkshake, Mike, which is literally pink. That was in episode three with Caleb. Literally, the strawberry milkshake is pink, which is a blend of red and white. And they lingered on that milkshake so much. And that's such a big part of Caleb's backstory. This is why I have a theory that Caleb is not fully human. I, I have a theory that Caleb is partially machine, partially human, and that's why the, the pink milkshake with him and his backstory is going to play prevalent in episodes going forward. That's 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 the I have there, which connects back to the opening credits that you talked about. Now there's so many different hints in there. Yeah, I also like the the thing that the visual credits are interesting. It's like when you see the host swimming towards the surface and and he sticks his hand up and pierces the surface, and you see the reflection comes on the other side. It's another interesting thing to consider is like oh like there's different parts of the personality coming out we're we getting a true mirror image of the host in, in the real world like that or is it being distorted a little bit like we talked about earlier well i think the thing with the mirrors mike is i think there are two different worlds i think there's a simulation world which the rock is in with made which is kind of living 
within Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is creating the real world to the best of its capability. Um, and then, there, then there's the real world, which has Dolores in it with Caleb and Bernard, but Sirach is not in that real world yet because he's still trying to figure out how to use Maeve to get what he wants from Dolores. That's what I think, because that's what I get with the mirroring, is there's two different worlds going on that are reflecting each other, but there's always a warp in the mirror where something's not entirely right. Like, I think Bernard's house, if you compared Bernard's house from episode four, which Maeve and Ciroc went to, um, and, and Ciroc showed Maeve how Dolores came back and recreated herself, if you compare that to the end of season two, uh, which was the big twist of Dolores being Charles's body and going back to the house, bringing back Bernard. I think you can tell some differences from the house, which is an example of a Hopalum creating a simulation world to the best of its capabilities, but still there being some slight, not, not mistakes, but just some slight differences between the simulation world and the real world. And that those are eventually going to collide. I don't know how, but... I think that is another thing with mirrors is there are different worlds mirroring each other, the virtual simulation world and then the real world. I think it's definitely interesting you brought that up. You know, Sam mentioned this theory as well last week because we thought that the Maeve part of the world was still a simulation. And to your point, I mean, we have not seen Maeve or Serac in any other character's storylines we've seen. We've seen Maeve and Ber- we've seen Bernard and Dolores interact. We've seen Dolores interact interacting with a bunch of other characters. We have not seen Maeve really interact with any of these characters. Like she's in her own sort of separate bubble, so we could see that theory being a realistic one. Well, she did interact with Dolores, quote-unquote, with the um, guy reconnecting with the Shogun leader. Yes, exactly. I'm forgetting his name. Uh, but the, he's now head of the head of the Yakuza. So we do see her interact with like Dolores, the, the mind of Dolores, if you will. Uh, but we didn't actually see her interact with the body and the mind, like the real Dolores. So it, it also proves your point, but I think Dolores has found a way to infiltrate both worlds, which makes her most dangerous and makes her the uh, the disruption that Sorak is so worried about. Yeah, as we mentioned before, Dolores is in a bunch of different bodies. One other thing that's interesting is that she did make Bernard back, and she apparently did bring Bernard's brain ball back, but you have to wonder, and this is something I that I think is theorizing interesting now, like, is Bernard really Bernard, or is Bernard just Bernard with a dormant Dolores personality looming underneath him? I think Bernard is Bernard, because I think if you go back to, to episode one, uh, if you go back to season one, excuse me, Dolores was part of creating Bernard um, with, with, uh, with Ford, right? Like, that was how Bernard came to be, with the help of Dolores and understanding. So I think that if Dolores is acting like a god, you always cherish your first creation, if you will. Like, you, you always go back to it. And that's why I think she can't, like, let him die, because he, cause he is the first thing that Dolores ever made and brought to life with free will and a conscience. So if Bernard were to die, then I think that would stimulate something to Dolores where she has failed in being a god already and being that creator and liberator that she wants. So I, I do think Bernard is Bernard. I still do believe that, and, and I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah, I, I can see that point. My theory is more of this, is that, like, you've, we've seen him fiddling around with, like, the button and running diagnostics on himself to see if Dolores is interacting with him, interfering with him. It wouldn't surprise you, because she said back at the beginning of, this, of the end of season two, actually, he said, like, 
I want you here to check on me in case I go too far. You have a role to play. And I wonder, like, if Bernard doesn't play the role correctly, if there is a part of Dolores in him that she can just override the Bernard personality and take over. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. I mean, you could tell Bernard is worried about it. He's worried that he's, he's under the control of somebody else. So uh, I, there may be a way where Dolores has an edge on him uh, and Bernard doesn't know it yet. That may be a reveal at the end of the season. I personally hope that's not the case. I hope Bernard is still of free will um, and has a little bit of freedom in his decisions, if you will. But we didn't see what happened to him at the end of, of episode four. Uh, he was confronted by the handsome Scottish bodyguard uh, that Dolores uh, killed and then re-implanted herself into. So we didn't see what happened to him at the end of episode four. So maybe something happens early in episode five that will help with your theory there. Yeah, we interesting. That's a five is going to be interesting. The other big part of this storyline that we got this week, which we hadn't had in the first three episodes, is the return of Ed Harris as the man in black. We got the William storyline coming back. And I got to say, this is fantastic acting by Ed Harris about the whole person, like whole being haunted by killing his daughter and questioning his nature of reality and wondering if he is really there, if he's all just like in his head and he's not really who he thinks he is. Yeah. I, his, him coming back, I love his character. He's probably my favorite character that's run through all the season just because I love he, the mental pressure that he puts himself in by overthinking everything. You always have that friend who's overthinking stuff, right? Who, who is always second-guessing the decisions that he wants to make, even though he knows the decision that he wants and that his decision is probably right. And that's what I feel with, with Ed Harris' character in The Man in Black. Um, I mean, Charlotte, if you will, quote-unquote, Charlotte tricked him into a mental hospital at the end of the episode where he asked the big question, like, who am I? Is he a host? Is he a human? So, Mike, I'll ask you this question. I'll turn the tables on to you, but let's answer first. Do you think he's host or human? I'm very tempted to say he's a host because, again, we still have that carrot of the season two like post credit scene of him being revealed to be a host at some point in the future, being test run through the Delos loop like like he did to his uh, father-in-law. I'd be tempted to say like this is really the beginning of that storyline, and Dolores is lying there at the end about like this is the end of the game or something to that effect. I forgot the exact client was, but makes he realize like, oh, maybe he did die at the end of season two. And they just sort of stuck his personality in a host to punish him for all the bad things he's doing. I, I with you, I believe he is a host. Um, and I, I'm actually, I'm willing to say I'm almost confident that he's a host. Um, that line that Dolores says at the end of the game is, uh, this is the end of the game is he's, he's gotten to the center of the maze of discovering who he truly is. And I think, if you go back to when he was shaving himself and Charlotte, again, quote, unquote, asked, why don't you use the bathroom? He says, I don't go in there. I think that the man in black, after his wife, after his wife killed herself, I think he also killed himself uh, due to the grief. Because if you look, the, 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 there's the blood, right, dripping um, on his head at the start of the episode, which is his wife, right? She cut herself. But when he, when in that same opening sequence, when there's that transition of the water and him coming up and getting out of the tub that's overfilled, there's no blood. It looks like he was drowning. It looks like he drowned himself. So maybe he took drugs or something and killed himself and then came back as a host, if you will. And so I think the thing with his father-in-law was that, right, he was the one that was going crazy in season two, like he kept on like not being able to complete the loop and always having like uh, glitches, right? Yep, that was right. I think that's because he, yeah, he knew he wasn't real. I think that with the man in black, the reason that he hasn't completely and utterly lost his mind yet 
is because he's learning by himself that he is not real. He's coming to the consciousness himself and making his own assumption. He has no hint to the fact that he is fake. He's doing it all himself and learning himself. Um, so I, I, I think I really do think he's a host. Um, and I think I, I don't know if that's going to make me like or dislike the character more or less, but I do think he is a host who, again, is going to become, I think, a disruption because he's going to have that own self-inclination of he realizes himself uh, that what he did and how he got to where he is and where he got his mind at. I will say I was very happy to see his daughter come back into the show as a flashback. I'm not usually a fan of those haunting flashbacks, if you will, but I think he's actually worked really effectively in this episode. Kind of a reminder to the good parts of season two, which I enjoyed their relationship and how she and how she died at his hands because he thought that she was a host when she was really human. Yeah, that part was fascinating. I, I do like what you said earlier about how like they sort of condensed the character flow here because there was a point I think like season two I think they at one point they had about like fifteen main characters, Cray, which I feel like was way too much. Now it's about like seven or eight, and like you really can really put these people in pairs now. It's easy. You have Sorak and Maeve. You have Bernard and Stubbs. You have Dolores and Caleb, and like those like pairings make it easier to keep track of the story, like who's interacting with who and like stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you wonder if this uh, if Westworld's going to take like after a True Detective on HBO, where season one was good, season one was great. Let's be honest, season two was not that great, and then season three was a return to form. So it's kind of following the same formula, if you will, a little bit here. Um, again, going back to its basic roots a little bit with the storytelling and and the writing. Um, and so again, episode four, it was again very singular in the way it told its story, but it came with the biggest twist at the end, which. I mean, the thing about Westworld, Mike, is you know this, and anyone who watches the show knows this, is there's always more questions than answers. But the thing is, now the questions are interesting, and they're actually worth thinking about, and they're not overwhelming. Yeah, they're not having these big existential questions. You're really having more simpler questions, like, okay, Dolores is duplicating herself. Like, where is her fifth body going to be? Like, when did she get this idea to duplicate herself? Like, that was the question you raised by this answer, as opposed to, like, where is this mystical alternate reality where the hosts can live, and, like, when can they gain content? Like those are like deeper, harder to sort of fathom questions. Yeah, I, I'm very curious to see where this season is going to go. Uh, how long is this season? Like, do you know? I don't know how many episodes it is. It's only eight episodes. We're actually halfway through. So we are halfway through. So that makes sense. This is the halfway, the culminating moment. Uh, I mean, now we're on the other side of the pulley where all the all the the things that were set. Now everything's going to come collapsing to the ground to the big finale. So. I'm I'm curious to see what's going to happen. Um, I I don't. Here's what here's one thing I'll say. I don't think this story ends up well for Caleb. I will say this. I don't think Caleb is going to end up living at the end of the season. If I had to predict. Now I think Marshall Lynch has a stronger chance of living through the end of the season than Caleb does. I would agree. Marshall Lynch though, was in the uh, the, the uh, rest of the season preview, if you will. Um, so I, I was happy to have him back as Giggles. I believe his name is Giggles yep, in the show. It's Giggles. It's just, I think it's fantastic. It's Giggles. Yeah, so I was happy to see him back. Yeah, before we move on from the Westworld, I want to ask you, as the movie guy, did you like the homages they did to Eyes Wide Shut in the scene at the uh, at the whorehouse? Yeah, I mean, you could definitely tell there was inspiration there. You get all the wealthy people in a room for a sex party for charity um, with the masks and everything like that. Definitely, and like the way, I mean, the way Stanley Kubrick made Eyes Wide Shut, too, like there's a little bit of a futuristic aspect to it. And but also combining that futuristic aspect with like I don't know like old Parisian architecture like old like 
not medieval architecture, but like that distinct kind of gothic kind of feel. And that's the same way they went with in Westworld. So I think there's definitely, definitely inspiration there. Um, so listen, you, you take inspiration from the best people and Stanley Kubrick's one of the best to ever do it instead of move. Um, so I don't think there are any parties like that happening now in America. And if there are, like, I'm not getting invited to any of those parties because I do not have enough money. Well, they also should not be happening because they're supposed to be obviously stay six feet away from each other. That's right. That's right. Self-quarantining. Even the rich and famous, the uber-rich and famous must be self-quarantining. That's absolutely right. Yeah. What's, like, what's one question you're, you have your eye on the rest of the season? You're wanting to track. Like, what sort of storyline you try most invested in right now? See what's going on. How are they going to bridge the simulation world with the real world? Because I really do believe that there are two worlds mirroring each other. The one in Rehoboam trying to figure out how to solve what's happening in the real world. Then the real world, which the Lord has been wreaking havoc in. How are they going to bridge those and bring Maeve over? Do they bring Sir Rock over into the quote-unquote real world? Because right now, I think we've only ever seen him in the simulation world, if you will. So uh, how do they bridge that gap? How do they bring those two worlds together? And maybe a way that is not crazy and it's just like, this isn't believable, or in a way that's too cheesy and hokey. It's a delicate line uh, to walk and it's a delicate tightrope to balance. But with the way season three has been going thus far, I'm like, I'm fairly confident that the showrunners and the writers are going to find a way, find a good way to do it. But that's what I'm most curious about. Yeah, I'm curious to see where the Ciroc angle ends. Because remember, he's talking to Maeve and she's like, talking like, oh, like, you should have brought me to Paris. And he's like, well, Paris doesn't exist anymore. I'm like, is it really like got nuked in like the 2040s or something? Or is it just a scenario where like this is just Rehobo not figuring out how to like make the real world completely accurate? I think it, I think Paris was blown up in the real world, if you will. It, that, that's what I do think. But again, that, that was like, that was an interesting part of the episode. That's a good point. That was kind of, it wasn't talked about, it wasn't expanded on, but it was just a kind of insight into uh, like the exposition of what maybe the creation of Westworld was to get away from maybe the horrors of what was happening in the real world. And that's why Westworld and Delos was creating the Shogun world, World War II world, and stuff like that. So I do think that what happened in the real world for Rock was personally affected. All right, let's 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 pause here on Westworld. There's a lot of stuff threads in the air. We'll keep we'll definitely touch back on this again in the future. But I want to touch on another thing, as you said, all hail HBO. They are the kings of content right now. We recently watched the HBO documentary McMillions. Give me the Stanko grade on it. I very much enjoyed McMillions, Mike. I gave it uh, a hearty B plus, almost an A minus. Um, I really said there was not a bad episode of it. Um, the, the show, it was incredibly well done. It was a story I had no idea about. Did you have any idea about this, Mike, before you watched the documentary? I remember reading an article briefly about it a couple of years ago. I kind of forgot, slipped my mind. But then once I watched this thing, I saw all the pieces coming together, and all the ridiculous lengths these people were going to to try and con the uh, game, the system there. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, I, I have no idea. This is a confession, Mike. I have never played the Monopoly game at McDonald's. Uh, I can't remember the last time I had McDonald's. It's probably six or seven years. I never had it growing up. So the whole McDonald's culture and obsession is literally foreign to me because I just didn't grow up with it. My parents never got McDonald's for me as a kid. So seeing that was incredibly interesting to me and how people – Work like crazy for it. And it was a daily routine to go to McDonald's and to play this game. That part of me also blew me away is how big of a cultural footprint 
that McDonald's and the Monopoly game had at this point in history. Yeah, I love this thing. And like, who is your favorite character that they that they talked to throughout this piece? Who's the favorite your favorite interview subject? Oh, this is tough because the thing of I mean, the the showrunners of McMillian struck gold because almost every single person they interviewed was a character in itself. Like nobody was boring. Everyone had a unique look or the way they talked or the way they the way they told their stories. Everyone was great. Um I secretly think this is not my pick, but this is an honorable honorable mention. Mark Devereaux, the lawyer, was secretly the funniest person on the show. He had so many digs. He's just wearing his three piece suit with the vest, and he's just like he's just like some people are stupid. Like he, he talked not down to people, but like he knew that he was needling them a little bit. I thought he was really funny. But the person I find most interesting in the show would be Robin Colombo, um, because. Her story and being in in like a love triangle with Jerry Colombo and Jerry Jacobson and the way she talked about every story she told is that she was never at fault and the way she looked it, it was like she was crazy like everything about her was absolutely crazy but yet you couldn't take your eyes off her at all. Yeah, I like she was fun for sure. I have a tie for me. Like number one thing, AJ Guam, the um, the the guy who like basically took over as one of the main recruiters after uh, Jerry Colombo uh, dies and the quote the thing it may have may not have been a mob hit like he yeah. was fantastic like I mean the stories he was telling and like how like dark he was with his like sense of with a sense of humor like he was fantastic and of course I think it was yeah. sh- shout out to Doug Matthews the FBI agent who really gets the cra- case going I mean the fact he has the balls to show up to the McDonald's meeting in the complete gold suit just was like I was on the floor laughing. Yeah, Doug Matthews, he, I mean, again, absolute documentary gold with the way he told his story. You could tell that man loved to talk. Like, he just never shut up. You could you could just leave the camera rolling for a day, and he would continue talking. Um, I would admit, he probably got a little bit on my nerves because, like, I think he knew that he sounded really cool. Like, I don't know, he reminded me of the kid in high school where he would, like, jump on the, the table at lunch and, like, be loud. And it'd be funny a couple times. But then after a week of him doing it straight, you're like, all right, kid, get down. You could, like, you could tone it down a little bit. You don't need to be at 100 every single time. But there were times where I loved when Matthews, like, took me on why you liked him, when he wanted to be the first one to get an arrest when they were finally bringing everybody in. Yet he could find no way to do it. He was so frustrated that he was trying to scheme any way possible to get in there and get his arrest. But he was the last one to possibly get it. Yeah, and I believe he's arresting Guam too, which is actually, actually funny. He was arresting Guam, yeah. Yeah, I I love I love Guam. I don't, I don't know. Did you follow the McMillions podcast? I did follow the McMillions podcast. I love actually the last episode where Tom Segura was uh, interviewing the host of the show. I thought that was actually a great finale to it too. People that didn't actually see that last one, it was really really good. Yeah, they start, they did one after every episode. They snuck a bonus episode in there at the end. I think that was great. I love Guam because Guam was literally just like shooting, like basically just shooting from the hip, like no no f's given to like what was going on. And like he basically is like, yeah, I did this. So what? Yeah, he was so his self confidence is super high, but also his like self realization of like, yeah, I know what I am. I know what I do. I know I did some bad things. I know I put myself in the hole, but like he's so self so self confident, he could talk about it in a way where you don't think less of it. 
it's like, damn, this guy's got all this confidence to talk about this openly. He's a magnet. He was he was a really, really good interview. He was great. So what before we move on from McMillions, what was the most unbelievable thing you saw in the entire piece? The most unbelievable I mean, let's be real. Uh is it the son? The Colombo family, I can't remember the husband and wife who were interviewed throughout the thing. Uh, who eventually told who... I think, it was, um, I think it was Frank, I want to say. Yeah, but, I mean, this isn't my answer, but when their son walked in at the end of the document, at the end of the last episode, and he worked in McDonald's, a completely genuine thing that the producers of the show didn't know, where they all cracked up laughing, that was a really funny moment. But the most unbelievable thing in the show... Uh, the most unbelievable thing in the show is how the people who were taking these winning tickets how they always just bought into it and they never thought this is too good to be true um i know that some of the people who took the tickets were in hard positions where they're paying off bills and they needed the money and stuff like that but it's it's like this is too good to be true someone's literally handing you a twenty five thousand dollar winning ticket and you're you think that you're going to get a, get away with this shot free, and that there's not going to be any connections to it? I the people bought into it. It makes me think that everyone who was selling the tickets, like Colombo or Guam or Jerry Jacobson, they were really good salesmen to get them to buy the tickets. But that blew me away with how many people took the opportunity without blinking an eye, going, "Yeah, this just sounds great. I'll do this. This is fine. This won't get this won't bite me in the butt later." Yeah, I think for me there were two things. Number one was the mob-style hit that they put on Jerry Colombo. He ends up dying from the car accident. They, that, like, like, literally was straight out of, like, a gangster movie. Like, that was pretty nuts. And the other thing was, like, how, like, whenever they interviewed these winners, like, all of them, except for Gloria Brown, were, like, so quick to, like, just talk, like, oh, yeah, I had this great story. I found the ticket in a magazine, blah, 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 blah. And none of them were suspicious at all. That something funky was up with this. Well, Lori Brown's the only one who actually had a clue. Like, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't be talking about where I got this ticket from. Yeah, that's you know what? That's a great point, Mike. You're right. The interviews where um, where the FBI was doing the fake interviews to get all the information, and those were so funny because of how elaborate the stories were and how I believe the first one they showed in the documentary, the person they were interviewing said that he immediately thought that the lady hosting him that she liked him. And it's because she was being so nice to him and stuff like that and how she was smitten by him. And it's like, oh, my God, these people are so full of themselves. They're just going to tell the story to the camera. They don't know that they're indicting themselves and, and giving themselves away. That, that is a really good point with how open so many people were with the lie. Imagine if they all went to Las Vegas, Mike, like, like they were supposed to. Imagine if they had that big party in Las Vegas with all the winners. Oh, my God. Like, they basically all be hanging themselves with, like, the rope they were tell- giving the investigators these stories. Yeah, exactly. It'd be, it'd be absolutely crazy. But th- th- those were very entertaining. Um, yeah, those were very entertaining. Those, those were eye-opening of the personalities of the people who would accept the winning tickets. Indeed. Let's let's go to some other stuff you've been keeping your eye on. The, you, the Stanko stance is a very busy keeping eye on things. I saw you went through every episode of Love is Blind. What was your take on that show? Oh, Mike, this show sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, the show is terrible. But I watched every single episode. Mike, I don't know why I did it. It was a garbage, garbage TV show. Um, I hate everything about this TV show, Mike. I hate almost everybody on it for the most part. It was so cringeworthy. I also just don't believe in the concept at all. 
Like, physical attraction is part of loving somebody. That is just a natural thing. Why fight that? You don't need to fight it. It's like a real thing in life. Like, it's fine to admit, like, if you don't think someone's as pretty as somebody else. It's okay. It's not rude. Um, so I didn't like the concept from the start. And then the people, how crazy are you, Mike, to propose after three days of knowing somebody? Three. Or whatever it was. It was ten if you went all the way through with it. Mike, that's insane. That's absolutely insane. Mark, you're 24 years old, and you want to get married to Jessica who's 34? Are you serious? But when I was 24, that was the furthest thing from my mind. God, it's just, you need to have a completely different mindset to be on the show, Mike. And I could not see myself being friends with anybody on the show. Nobody. Just a complete different mindset for me at the ages that they're at. And I just, it's insane. It, it was absolutely insane show. But as you can see, Mike, I have a visceral reaction to it, so it got to me. And I'm going to tell myself I'm not going to watch seasons two and three. I'm telling myself that now. I'm telling you, and I'm telling your audience. You're not but watching. I'm also telling you, I'm probably going to cave when the new seasons come out, and I'll hate watch it just as much as I did season one. <laughs> Draw. The right. show stinks. Carlton is the worst. Did you watch this? Did you watch Mike? I did not watch I was asking you. Oh, Mike, you should watch to get a taste for how how much you can hate a person on TV. And again, I'm sure these people are very nice in real life. You know what? I, I'm not sure they wouldn't be friends with any of them, but just to go on this show and to think it would work and to leave your job to do it and to buy into it, there's no part of me that bought into this that this could be real. Zero. Yeah, so I'm guessing it's getting a, it's getting a, a solid D from you, I'm guessing. I mean, the thing is, I watched all of it, and I had a visceral reaction, and it was just, I don't know. It was garbage It was garbage TV. It, it was peak garbage TV, and I was a sucker for it, and I dove through the trash. Speaking of diving through the trash, I also saw you took a peek at Tiger King. I did take a peek at Tiger King. Did you watch Tiger King? I have watched one episode so far. I watched one last week, because Sam said last week, said, I've watched the whole thing. I said, let's talk about it. Everybody's talking about it. So, what was your take on Tiger King? Uh, Tiger King was a good show. It was not great, but it was entertaining. Um, I do think the show starts off strong, peaks around, peaks around episode four and five, and then episode six and seven, I thought were the two worst episodes. So that's my take. Um, the thing about the show, Mike, is you're going to root for everybody to fail. Everybody. You want everybody. There's nobody likable in this show. Nobody. And it's hard to make a show like that, a documentary, where you're literally rooting for no. There's no protagonist. The only thing you're rooting for is the Tigers to be alive at the end, which isn't even a guarantee. Because Joe Exotic and everybody just completely puts Tigers to the wayside, and it's insane. Um, but again, I, I literally watched the show in one day. I, I started work one day at 8 a.m. or whatever, and I was like, I'm going to watch Tiger King today. And I just went through and I watched it all in one day. I just put it on the background while I was working. And it, it kept my attention. It kept me awake. It never drew me away where I was suffering in so much where I stopped working, if you will. There were some moments where I was like, well, that is strange. Um, and I would like pause for 30 seconds. But it was a good show. It was entertaining. Um, I honestly would not recommend it to people, if I'm being honest with you. I would just say, if you want to, sure. But I'm not saying it's a must-watch by any means. Um, 
But the thing is, like, there's nobody to root for in this show, Mike. Nobody. Everyone is despicable. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right from what I've seen. I, from what like, I'm gonna obviously just finish this up, I, I'm up on what people are talking about this, but I just think this is a case where this is a right place, right time show where we're all stuck in our houses and like this show would not have taken off like it has if we were all living our normal lives. You are absolutely 110 percent correct. 110 percent. Yeah, because I, I talked about this with Sam last week. She said this theory like again, like we're all sitting in our houses. This probably would have made more attention in the summertime as people discover it slowly and they would have gotten there, but it would not have been an overnight hit like it was. No, I mean, I'm amazed with how much this took over the internet. And there, there are so many memes that you can make, like Errol Baskin, I'll let you, haven't seen the episode yet, but I'll let you make your own determination, but she has become a meme juggernaut. Like every, there are so many memes you can make with her faces and her costumes and different things she does in the show. It's a thing has become internet gold and people are mining it for every single sense that they can get. And the thing is, it might be an infinity well because of how crazy the show is. It might. I know they're making another episode keeping like, coming out soon, apparently. So they are on... Are they? Yeah, they're supposed to get an eighth episode coming out soon on Netflix. Oh, no. All right, well, I'm going to watch that, but <laughs> okay. Yeah, I got to watch the other it's... six before I get to that one, but I'll get there. Yeah, I mean, Bill Exotic has coronavirus in prison, too. So, uh, I mean, wonder if they'll touch on that. Anyway, probably not. But it, it's, a, it's a crazy show. I mean, the amount of plot, it's, like, it's the truest test of uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Like, you can't make this stuff up. You could not make up all this stuff in a, like, in a fictionized tale because this can only happen in real life. Yeah, I would tell people who are watching Tiger King, go watch McMillions. They'll get a much more fulfilling experience than Tiger King. McMillions is a much better show. Yeah. yeah. Much better show. All right. So as I'm asking everybody, like, on the sh- on the pop culture segments this week, I'm sort of doing, like, the streaming queue, the playlist, whatever you want to call it. So what else is on the Stanko streaming queue right now? Oh, my there's so much. Um, honestly, there's too much. I have watched a ton of movies. Um, I think I've added over 20 movies to my list in the past two weeks. Um, some good, some bad. Um, I've watched a bunch of TV shows. I've been on a BBC, um, TV show kit. I watched Killing Eve on Hulu. I don't know if you've seen Killing Eve, but it's excellent. And then I finally watched The Bodyguard on Netflix, which was superb. Um, so that was really good. Uh, but I've just, like, I've been watching so many movies. Um, and most of them have been pretty good. I've only had maybe three or four complete thinkers, but. I do have a stinker for you. Uh, that was a very popular movie that I thought was really bad. What's that? Frozen 2. Oof. That movie was trash. It was just not good. There was like, it, the story made no sense. The songs weren't that great. It looked great from a visual effect standpoint, but there was nothing. There was no magic to it. The characters were all annoying. Like, Frozen 2 was a dud. It was gross. Oh, I was so disappointed when I finally saw it on a Disney Plus. Yeah, so in other words, an F for Frozen on the Snake Hill grading scale. No, not an F, but like, it, 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 I mean, for a kid movie, kids will love it. But if you're watching the movie, comparing it to the first one, which is, I feel like, a little bit overrated, it just, there is no comparison at all. And I'm very happy now it was not nominated for Best Animated Feature because there's no way it should have been. 
in that list. It, it was just not a very good animated movie whatsoever. The Secret Life of Pets 2 was a more enjoyable movie than Frozen 2. Hot take. That's, I don't think that's a hot take. I think that's a real take. But in terms of other shows I'm going to watch, um, in terms of bad reality shows, Mike, I think I'm going to take the plunge into the circle, which I think you've talked about before. Uh, yes, and we talk about this soon on the podcast, our good friend Steve Colto. Yes, uh, so I, I'm going to take the plunge into the circle for a bad reality show background viewing. Uh, that's on my list. I'm probably going to catch up on a show, Bosch, on Amazon Prime, uh, which I really enjoyed the first two seasons of. Um, I have so many things on HBO uh, that I, I'm going to watch in terms of movies. And then another trash reality show, but I can't call it trash because I'm going to be suckered in and probably love every second of it, is the Listen to Your Heart uh, Bachelor six-episode miniseries on ABC. Uh, because God knows, Mike, I love The Bachelor and Bachelorette, and this is connected to it in some way, shape, or form. So I'm going to be watching Listen to Your Heart on ABC for my Bachelor uh, my bachelor dose as well. Yeah, this is some fun picks on there. I mean, next week on this pop culture segment, we're bringing a new voice for pop culture. I'm bringing in our friend Alan Pines. He has some stuff that he's been streaming. He, I'm giving him the Pines playlist next week. He's give us some recommendations. I'm going to throw mine out there next week as well. So we're giving you some recommendations. Not going to be just Westworld next week. Well, the thing is, like, this is a time where if you were going to watch a show or movie, there's no reason now not to watch it. You have every opportunity to do it. In, indeed. You, like, you can't say you don't have time anymore. Yeah, you have nothing but time. So that's the thing. So the hardest thing for me, Mike, is I, I've never finished Breaking Bad. Like, I think Breaking Bad was good. It wasn't great. I'm literally in the middle of season five, and I still have not had the urge to go and finish it yet. Some people may think that's blasphemy on this podcast. But I still don't have a strong urge to go and finish it. And I probably should, but I don't. Yeah, that's, some, that's something just about Breaking Bad. And you, you have El Camino now, too, as an option if, if you get through Breaking Bad. I mean, yeah, if I, if I finish Breaking Bad, I can then knock a movie off my list with El Camino. Um, but it's, it's also very similar the characters that Air, uh, the Air Paul's playing in Breaking Bad and Westworld Season 3. Characters that are flawed personality-wise, have a bit of depression, and need to be at the behest of a very commanding and demeaning person in order to accomplish their task. They're both very, very similar. Yeah, next time that you're on here, we think we have this planned out for a little bit. Like, we're actually got some fun. We're going to let go through my Netflix DVD queue, which I've told you on several occasions that we – I have – Movies backed up there. I think like about 30 movies in there that I get the DVDs coming in. I'm going to start catching up on that. This Next time that John's on, we're going to go through that queue. John's going to reorder it and add stuff to it. I love that idea so much. I love that idea. Yeah, because... I love... The, I would like... I, I want to be like a, like a movie professor. Be like, all right, what types of movies do you like? All right, here are five to start with. It's like, uh, you know those uh, mail services where they ship you clothes? So you can ship back the ones you don't like, but there's like a personal, uh, like clothes service for you, which fit your style. I want to be that for movies. Come with me with the with the types of movies that you like, and I'll give you five good recommendations, and we can go from there. I'll give you, I'll be your movie diary. Yeah. So basically, what Stanko is doing for for me basically is we're going to read through the queue what it is at that point when we record the podcast. He's going to reorder. He's going to add some of his his favorite choices to the to the queue, so to, to broaden my horizon a little bit movie wise. 
Well, my first thing you got to do is you got to finish Tiger King. We'll talk to you after you finish Tiger King, but you all your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'll finish Tiger King. And just another thought that popped in my head. We'll talk a little more movie broad strokes next time. But, like, it feels like this coronavirus will be another reason for the Avatar sequel to be delayed. Yes, Avatar is going to be delayed. And James Cameron no longer can blame it on himself. He can blame it on the coronavirus. Who was excited for Avatar? I don't know. They have four sequels in in the order. Nobody really asked for more than one. But the thing is, like, I, it's crazy. And the thing is, like, there's so much special effects with that movie and editing post that you need to have people in a room doing it together. Like, and you can't have people in a room editing it. So, so I, Mike, this is a whole separate movie podcast uh, topic. But, like, the movie industry is going to change forever with this coronavirus. I think there's going to be long-lasting effects. And Avatar, James Cameron may have enough money where he may book the trend, but there's going to be projects canceled. There's going to be production companies that, approached in a whole different way and it's the way that we view movies and the way we get movies can change forever I think because of this coronavirus that's a good tease for a future appearance from John Stanko but we'll wrap this one up today John thanks for hopping on before I let you go a lot of people know how to find on social media and keep up with Stanko's stance the blog, the blog at least I know the podcast has, has been a little bit MIA but the blog is cranking very much yeah the blog is cranking uh, Stanko's stance.wordpress.com you can find the links on my social media which are all at jstanko99 on Twitter, Instagram, John Stanko on Facebook. I'm public. Come find me. Um, I, rant and, I rant and rave about my TV viewing and movie viewing and when I watch The Circle, I will be having episode by episode reactions of me yelling at the people on the screen. So those are always very entertaining just me venting. So Mike, appreciate letting me plug stankosstance.wordpress.com. Hey, and I'll throw this one out there to you. If you finish the circle by the time me and uh, our buddy Steve Coltz are ready to record, you are welcome to come on that podcast as well. Oh, let's make it a tripod. Let's get the trio on there. Yeah, we'll get the conference call I would love going. that. I would love that.